0: Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radio Lab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know wherever you get podcasts. It's the takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris Perry. Last month, violence took over Sudan's capital of Khartoum. It's now spread throughout the entire country, and thousands of civilians have fled from the chaos seeking refuge. They fled to nations like Chad, Egypt, and other neighboring countries. Now, despite a second 72-hour ceasefire, violence has continued, and nations, including the U.S., have evacuated their diplomats and citizens out of Sudan. Now, violence here is stemming from the long rivalry between two generals and the fighting between the two rivals has resulted in attacks on healthcare facilities and the destruction of the airport. Civilians trapped in the capital are facing shortages of medicine, fuel and food and are unable to leave their homes without fear of being killed. To get a closer look at what's happening in Sudan, we spoke on Tuesday morning with Lindsay Shetel, New York Times reporter from the Johannesburg Bureau. Lindsay, welcome to The Takeaway.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: All right. Can you talk with me about who these two generals are?
1: To so the two men at the centre of this conflict are General Abdel Fattah Al-Burhan and Mohammed Hamdan, widely known as Hameti. General Al-Burhan um, has been a member of the Sudan, uh, Sudanese Armed Forces. He's a four-star general. Um, he was... Uh, he's led a grinding counterinsurgency campaigns in several parts of the country and he was also the man that helped crush the Darfur uprising in the early 2000s Hameti's career as we know it today also stems from that uprising the story goes that he was a camel trader who turned um, who became a militia commander um, he was part of the Janjaweed a group whose leaders still face charges of crimes against humanity at the international criminal court um Hameti proved to be a wily political player though and he used his position to amass wealth and power Fast forward to to 2019, when there was a massive civilian protest in Sudan that brought down the three-decade-long rule of Omar al-Bashir. The two men turned on Omar al-Bashir and eventually backed the civilian uprising, but that didn't last long. By 2021, both of them had backed a military coup, removing the prime minister of the country. And those are just some of the steps that have led to the conflict that we're seeing today.
0: Now, this story is in many ways, not uh, a novel one, um, either on the continent or in other parts of the world where this sort of initial military efforts, presumably to throw up a civilian led uh, democratic government result within sometimes within days, sometimes within years, instead in military control.
1: Yeah, and I think that's what's so particularly heartbreaking about the Sudanese example is that if you remember in 2019, it was such a moment for the continent and the region to see a civilian-led um, uprising standing outside the military demanding change, and they seemed for a moment to get that change. There was a glimmer of hope, and they had, but then that they had the backing of the military. But then, of course, that military council turned on the civilians, and and we slowly saw the sort of this creeping military rule, and in part because neither man wants to let go of power. Up until days before this conflict broke out, both men were sitting with Western diplomats, sitting with diplomats from around the continent, discussing a path towards civilian rule. But at the same time, they were both shoring up their men around the capital Khartoum to make sure that they maintained power. So in the event that they didn't get what they wanted on the table, that they would walk away and they would go to war. And that's what we've seen. And the main issue here was that the rapid support forces, who the group that is led, by they, they are supposed to be subsumed as part of the Sudanese armed forces. The question is whether it will be over 10 years, as Hameti has asked, because that allows him to maintain power, or two years, as Albert Khan wants. And that is the main issue that has dragged thousands of civilians into this conflict over these two men and their power struggle.
0: I suppose I can understand what is at stake for these two men, but they are not necessarily, I mean, th- the fighting is at a level where clearly it is their um, armed forces willing to fight in this way. What is the story? Because um, typically the, the narrative moves beyond, we're simply here to preserve the power of the leader. What is the um, the story, the narrative um, among the, the fighting forces that is helping to drive this? Because- that narrative often will continue to create fissures in a nation long after the fighting stops.
1: Mm-hmm. So we've seen, for example, the rapid support rapid support forces. They've been issuing statements along the lines saying that General Al-, Al Burhan is a part of a group of Islamists who are trying to bring in sort of a, a fundamentalist rule to Khartoum. On the other hand, we're seeing um, Al um general abrahams fighters saying that hermetic people are just upstarts they have no real military training they've come in from the outside they've challenged the um what is the long standing um political elite of the country and the 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 military elite of the country too and so and also sudan unfortunately has had a history of figures along what some would have described as african and arab leaders and so what we're seeing now is that even even though those words aren't exactly being used by the people that i'm speaking to there's a sense that the, you know, the rapid support forces are people who come from outside, people who come from the sticks, people who don't deserve to be in power and in leadership. And the others are the, the rapid support forces saying, well, now it is our turn. So with the rapid support forces, for example, because they're being seen as upstarts, because they're being seen as outsiders, they're pushing to be accepted into this um, Sudanese political elite.
0: That sort of insider outsider status, um, again, can have very long term consequences, again, even beyond sort of immediate fighting. But I'm also wondering in the context of the immediate violence, is there any sense of um, of it stopping anytime soon? I mean, given that the fighting seemed to continue right through both of the so-called ceasefires.
1: I think that's been the most Difficult thing to predict here because the fighting seemed to have caught so many people by surprise when it it broke out. So what's been happening is that for example, when the United when the um, State Department announced that there was a ceasefire, a 72-hour ceasefire, that the State Department also said that it had been speaking to both sides of the conflict. So these these people are these, these fighters are still negotiating to an extent, but they are also continuing to fight in the streets. And this is what makes it such a difficult battle to predict because it's happening in the streets of Khartoum. Khartoum has been turned into a ghost town that suddenly changes into a into an active war zone with uh, members of the rapid support, support forces having fanned out over the city. They've taken over buildings, they've taken over hospitals, taken over homes, taken over schools, and they're fighting from those areas. And the Sudanese armed forces are using their air advantage, um, dropping airstrikes on, on these buildings. And so what happens is, is that it's very difficult. For now, most of the violence is concentrated in the capital And the only solution, it seems, from those I've spoken to on the ground is to get the two generals at the table. But we know that the two generals have been at the table before. And so there isn't a lot of hope from the people that I speak to who are still in Khartoum and those who have fled. We're taking a
0: quick pause. More on the brutal situation in Sudan right after this. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza.
1: Students have tried to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world, even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas.
0: Students and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back with Lindsay Shutel, New York Times reporter from the Johannesburg Bureau, and we're talking about the conflict raging right now in Sudan. Can you talk a bit about the geographic importance of Sudan and why it is so coveted among regional and international powers?
1: Sure. So Sudan is a country in the the northeast of Africa and it has a strategic position. It's one of the third, it's the third largest country in Africa. It has oil wealth. It has gold wealth. It also has a large professional class, which means it also has a a wealth of people, which is something that we often overlook in in these countries. Sudan strategically is on the Red Sea, which makes it a military advantage. It has Ethiopia to the south. It has Egypt to the north. And we know that these two countries have been debating or rather arguing about uh, the damming of the Nile River, which which also runs through Sudan. Then we have Chad to the west. Um, and Chad, in particular, has, is a country that has also recently had a coup. And then we have South Sudan to the south, which is the newest country in Africa. And that was, up until about a decade ago, also part of Sudan. And South Sudan is in itself facing a humanitarian crisis. So a stable Sudan would have been a bulwark in this particular region. But now Sudan's violence is not only is not only tearing Khartoum apart, not only tearing the country apart, but it threatens to destabilize, but it's already a rather volatile area in the world.
0: As you've talked about this sense that civilians um, in Sudan are not feeling particularly optimistic, I'm wondering about other nations on the continent looking at this geographically critical space um, and this conflict emerging again after you know, this at least brief but bright period of the possibility of of civilian rule. What, um, What might this mean for both neighboring nations as well as for the continent more broadly?
1: The hope that Sudan carried in 2019 was the hope of democracy. It was a hope that you could change a country after three decades of being ruled by the iron fist of one man and his army, and that that you could see civilians and the professional class rise up to a country, rise up to lead a country. And that was the what we had for a short, short period in Sudan, It was unfortunately too short. And what's happening now is that I think, particularly when I look, when I talk to civilians and I listen to what people are saying about how sudan has fallen apart and what does that say about the power of democracy on the continent what does it say when you know despite the push that we saw from people that has not lasted and instead two men have been able to completely destabilize the country and led to the deaths of more than 500 people and thousands and thousands displaced it also means that this is an an area that i said that is already volatile we had Ethiopia to the south, that is currently struggling with its own civil war, even though there have been calls for peace in most recently, but the country itself has been battered in the Tigray region. We know that, for example, as I said, Chad earlier next to it has suffered a coup cool most recently. And so the question then is, and I think it's a question that is held for decades, what is required for peace in the Horn of Africa? And I think the loss for some that I'm hearing from some analysts is that Sudan. If it had been a peaceful democratic Sudan, could have played a role in stabilizing the region. But unfortunately, for now, that seems to have passed. As you talk
0: about sort of what a peaceful and democratic Sudan could have meant for stabilizing the region, do you have a sense of where the international community currently stands now, Beyond uh, the international community beyond the continent, um, on this question of whether or not intervention of some kind um, is important here for the interests of um, Asian, European, and North and South American nations?
1: So what we've seen early on is that Sudan might be beginning to also play a role in the sort of competition on the African continent between uh, the United States and Russia and the United States and China. Early on in the conflict, we saw um, the Wagner Group, which is which is a uh, Russian private military force, and they were arguing that they wanted peace and that they were arguing that the West was only after blood. On the other uh, on the other side, we have um, the West, particularly the United States, and we know that Secretary, Secretary Blinken was part of trying to negotiate that ceasefire even though it didn't hold and so we are seeing both we are seeing a real effort to try and negotiate peace we do know that the united nations secretary general's office has dispatched someone immediately to the country and so there are these efforts to try and broker peace between the reg- between the two generals and to bring stability to the region however we do know that even in the run-up to this conflict within weeks before possibly even days both generals were dining with diplomats. And that is the criticism of from people on the ground who were saying that diplomats were so eager to try and find a solution and to sort of that they were almost kowtowing to to the generals, that they were almost allowing too much. And this is now the, the position that civilians find themselves in, caught between these two men. And I suppose the the question now is what sort of approach will Western countries, and also to an extent, Russia and China, what approach will they have towards bringing peace to Sudan? Because it is a strategic country, it is a wealthy country, and it is a country that could help stabilize an entire region on the continent.
0: Lindsay Chutel is New York Times reporter for the Johannesburg Bureau. Lindsay, thank you so much for taking the time here with us on The Takeaway.
1: Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for focusing on the story.